the New Statesman. Hi, I'm Philippa Nossolol at the New Statesman, and you're listening to a special bonus episode of World Review in partnership with the Club of Rome. 50 years after the groundbreaking Limits to Growth report, the Club of Rome is publishing a new book, Earth for All, a survival guide for humanity. Today, we're going to hear from some of the book's authors about how humanity is at a crossroads, how they believe we can choose either to move forward and create a cleaner, better, more equal world for all, or choose to continue to destabilize people and the planet. In our earlier episode, we looked at the Limits to Growth report and the state the world is in 50 years after it was published. The new book hopes to be a roadmap to a better future, bringing together scientists and economists to show how we can still turn things around and bring about prosperity for everyone within planetary limits. Joining me to discuss the new book are some of its authors, Sandrine Dixon-Declair, co-president of the Club of Rome, Giatti Ghosh, an internationally recognized development economist and professor at the University of Massachusetts, and Jorgen Randers, Professor Emeritus of Climate Strategy at the BI Norwegian Business School. Thank you, everybody, for being with us today. So Limits to Growth was a stark warning as to what would happen if we continued with business as usual and continued to pollute. This summer, certain of those warnings seem to become becoming reality. We've seen the terrible floods in Pakistan. We've seen floods in the state, in Australia, terrible droughts in China. There's heat waves, drought in, in Europe, the UK. In, is that war- warning coming to pass? And, and how do you see the book's finding fitting in with the reality of the world that we're facing today? Uh, absolutely, Philippa. And let me just add that the Club of Rome didn't just publish one book, actually. Over the last 50 years, there have been a series of different publications that have indicated that really we are in a situation where our impact on the planetary boundaries has only continued to grow. And the mentality that growth at all costs will actually enable us to thrive just does not add up. And I think today you can clearly see that the juxtaposition of the tipping points that we have in front of us social tipping points, as well as environmental tipping points, like the ones that you've just pointed to in terms of the climate effects that are not only hitting most of the world in the South, but also very clearly the North, as well as the conflict tipping points and the way in which our unholy alliances and dependencies on certain energy forms, materials, and also clearly food are creating real difficulties across the globe. So the beauty of this book, if we can talk about beauty at this time, is that what we've tried to do in Earth for All, a survival guide for humanity, is to bring forward what we call the system dynamic model, to really think through the interrelationships between some of the most complex indicators and effects that we're seeing across the globe. And of course, Jürgen will speak more about this. And to stress test that with the world's leading economic thinkers, and I stress that is very important because we have a tendency to bring our Western thought leadership into this new area of new economic thinking and assume that that is a leadership in also the South. That is a new thinking of the South. 
And I think what we wanted to do was to make sure that if we look at the results of this system dynamic model, that we bring in some of that thinking from very different countries, from very different backgrounds, in order to bring in the diversity of thought, but also to truly make sure that we have the right solutions at hand. And so that is what we've tried to do in developing then two key scenarios, what we call the too little, too late scenario, which we will unpack for you as we go through this discussion. And of course, the giant leap scenario, two scenarios that will very much demonstrate what needs to happen in order for us to emerge from this planetary emergency. Maybe one last point. We cannot think that because we've looked at these scenarios that are long-term scenarios, that we don't actually have short-term levers that we can put in place right now, especially faced with the Ukrainian invasion and its impacts, especially faced with the inflationary impacts, which is a compound effect of COVID and also the Ukrainian invasion. So this is the moment. This book comes at a time when we can think through short-term levers so that we don't go back to business as usual. And so we start to really adopt that giant leap now with some very specific solutions that we will speak about. Thank you, Sandrine. And Jorgen, can I bring you in here to explain a little bit more what are these scenarios? And then if we make this giant leap forward, I think you come up with five interconnected scenarios that need to happen within the giant leap. And what are they and how would they work together to bring about this more positive solution for the world? The Earth for All analysis starts with repeating ad nauseum the fact that the world is facing not one problem, but many problems at the same time. And we're basically highlighting the poverty problem, the inequality problem, the food, the climate problem, the food problem, and the fifth one I know forget. So that doesn't uh, matter much. We're then making the point that these problems have existed at least over the 50 years since I participated in writing The Limits to Growth without this actually leading to very much action, in spite of the fact that the action is surprisingly simple. And we are then once more repeating what are the five things that needs to happen if we are going to solve the five interrelated problems. And the solution is very uh, simple. Point number one, we need to remove poverty in the poor world because that's the largest problem the world is facing at this point in time. The fact that six billion out of the eight billion people are still below the material standard of living necessary in order to live a decent life. The second thing we need to do is to do something about inequality, both within the countries and across the globe, because unless we do so, we have no chance in getting a solution agreed in democratic society. We, and that I think is perhaps the most important message of the book, namely that if we are ever going to adopt in democratic majority the solutions that have been proposed for 50 years, we need to start making sure that the rich pay the bill that inequality problem is solved. 
The third problem that we're mentioning is the disempowerment of women, which has also been there all along and where the solution is as obvious as it has always been, namely education, health, contraception and opportunity for women. The fourth problem we're looking at is the food problem, the fact that we, yes, we are growing enough food to make half of the population obese. And, but this is done in such a way that we're destroying the natural environment. So we are proposing what needs to be done to reduce the environmental footprint of the way in which we produce the world's food. And then fifthly comes what is the most obvious problem to the people of the West, which is the climate problem, which is the underlying energy problem, which is very simple to solve in principle. The problem comes from us burning coal, oil, and gas, and that's 70 to 80% of the problem. And so the only way to solve the climate problem is to stop burning coal, oil, and gas. Mm. And since it's the rich 2 billion people that are burning most of the coal, oil, and gas, we will need to start by reducing their use of coal, oil, and gas while leaving the rest of the world, most of the world, as we call it, free to pursue higher material standards for themselves. Thanks, Jorgen. And Jayati, what's very key to the book, as it was with Limits to Growth, is this need to change the economic system as well and to move away from this growth for growth's sake model. And, and I wondered how realistic you thought that was, because even in the current crisis, the mantra of growth is very much there. We've heard from Liz Truss, the new UK prime minister, who has stood up and said immediately she's going to grow the economy. So perhaps you could explain your thinking around this and how you, the conclusions that would show that we could move from this growth for the sake of growth model to something which would reduce inequality and solve those problems that you're going to enunciate for us. Yes, I think what's really important in this report is the recognition that GDP growth is not just not a savior, but it's actually a problem. And that's because the obsession with just the monetary aspects of economic activity is so misleading, especially when it doesn't take into account inequalities, when it doesn't recognize the nature and pattern of the growth and who the benefits of that growth are accruing to that it diverts policymakers into absolutely the wrong kinds of strategies. In other words, the kind of short-termism that Sanjay was talking about, where you respond to immediate shocks by doing anything you can to somehow keep GDP going or increase it. All of those result from this obsession, which is completely misplaced because it doesn't reflect quality of life and it doesn't actually generate the kinds of economies that benefit people and society. So what's very important in this report, I think it's nuanced in two very important ways. One is that it recognizes that you do need to reach a certain level of per capita income in order to achieve what you could call a dignified life for all. And there's a very impressive econometric study there, which indicates that pretty much most countries are able to reach the minimum of the sustainable development goals at something around $15,000 per capita income. Now, most countries in the world, the number of countries in the world that fall below that is more than half. And so clearly we have to have growth in these countries, but it doesn't mean just growth for growth's sake. It has to be growth of a certain type directed towards improving the living conditions of ordinary people. And that's where the discussions that Jürgen mentioned about poverty and inequality are so critical. 
that it can't just be growth for growth's sake. It has to be growth directed to bettering the conditions of particularly the bottom half of the population. But in other parts of the world, really, it's not GDP growth that is going to give you a better life anymore. If anything, we know, whether it's in Europe or the UK or North America, that periods of GDP growth have not necessarily led to better life for the bottom half of the population. It's been more insecure, more fragile, and created greater social and political resentments as well. So in a sense, what we're really saying is let's forget about thinking how everything else can serve the economy. We have to think of how the economy can serve our social needs and goals and, our, and allow us to live in harmony with nature and the planet. So we're really, if you like, putting the problem on its head. We're saying, let's think of the kind of economic changes we need and the strategies we need to make sure that we deliver on our social and planetary goals rather than saying we have to do these social goals because the economy will then grow at a certain rate. It's really that which is a very major focus of that discussion. And in that, I want to emphasize the point that Jorgen made. Inequality is absolutely central. It's not just that the rich will have to pay for a lot of this, but it's really the rich that are causing a lot of the problem. Whether it is in terms of carbon emissions, 10% of the richest people in the world are responsible for more than half of global carbon emissions. And the bottom half, the poorest half of even the rich countries of even North America and Europe have actually had lower carbon emissions than the richest in East Asia. And those carbon emissions have been declining over the past decade. So it's possible. I just want to also add to the points that Sandrine and Jorgen made. These are all doable. It's a giant leap, right. yes. But it's a giant leap, essentially, politically and ideologically. These are eminently doable policies and strategies. They're not things that cannot be thought of. Thanks. And one way that you talk about in the report to, to bring about or to bring down this inequality is the idea of a citizens fund and a certain amount of wealth distribution. Jorgen, could you perhaps talk us through that as to exactly how that would work? Yes, I can. But I would like to start by saying that Another, a shorter way of summarizing what the Earth for All book is all about is that it states that the problem ahead is basically the fact that well-being, the average well-being of the working man and woman in the world is likely to decline systematically and persistently over the next 50 years if we pursue the decision-making procedures and the economic system solutions that we have pursued over the last 50 years. And that frames the question in a perhaps more understandable manner. So it basically says that the question is, how can we avoid the fact that well-being for most people is declining gradually and move it at least into a situation where people does not get a worse life. And ideally, of course, one where well-being is increasing. And when we then start that discussion, of course, one has to talk about what is well-being. And the point that Yayati made is, of course, that well-being is not the same as GDP. If we increase GDP, that does not, in most places of the world, increase well-being. Actually, it lowers well-being because it increased to 
warmer climate, it leads to more inequality, etc., more concentration. So that's the starting point. The, this book is actually a guide to how one can ensure that the well-being of the average woman, man and woman actually increases over the next 50 years. And the very short answer to how that is going to happen is simply by moving labor and capital, a small part of the world workforce and the world capital from dirty sectors to clean sectors. So it basically means having those people that currently build coal-fired utilities have the same people and the same machinery produce windmills and solar panels. Yes, windmills and solar panels are more expensive than coal, and that's the reason why this shift has not occurred in the past. It should occur, it must occur in the future if we're going to solve the problem. And in order for this to happen, we need to interfere with the market because the market sends only money to where it is profitable, not into what is needed in order to increase well-being. So the marching order now is to move two to four percent to uh, between two and four percent of the manpower of the world and the machinery of the world away from generating problems and wealth for the rich to improving the well-being of the working man and woman. And this is fully doable by taxing the 10% riches another 10% on income. And is this how you see the Citizens Fund working or is that something slightly different to what you've just described? I'm glad you asked that question because the logically next question after one has told what the Earth for All model is all about or recommendation is all about is how do you make the 10% riches pay? How? And it's very simple. The simplest way is, of course, for democracy to, in a majority vote, increase the taxes on the 10% richest sufficiently that it puts the bill of 2 to 4% of national income. And in any educated, relatively sane democracy, that vote should be won immediately because more than 50% of the people would benefit greatly from the state being strong enough to put in place those five solutions that we're talking about. However, of course, societies are not sane. Democracies are fairly stupid. And consequently, one needs a smarter way to force the 10% to pay. My advice here has not been followed by the majority. My advice is to print the money in just the way we did during the financial crisis and also during the COVID response, but most people see this as very, because that leads to slightly more inflation, which steals from the rich and does not matter much for the poor, uh, because the poor's salaries are typically adjusted in same society. But that meets a lot of opposition. Third way of doing this is the fund, which involves copying what has happened in Alaska, and in Norway, where the state in both cases essentially have nationalized the raw material, the resource sectors of the economy. They keep running them, but the profit is then split among all Alaskans and all Norwegians in equal amounts, thereby ensuring that you know, the natural endowment of the country is actually exploited for the benefit, not of the owner of those things, but for the benefit of all citizens 
in the nation. Thank you, Jorgen. And Jayati, perhaps you could explain a bit how that would work across the world, because it sounds quite an idealistic concept to, to redistribute the wealth across the world. And then also in terms of the financial bodies which rule the world, such as the IMF, et cetera, at the moment, do they also need to change the way that they operate so that they're more in line with the system that, that you're discussing in the book? Absolutely, Philippa. I think one of the big things that we are also talking about here is that none of this can be done without much greater regulation. Yes, taxation of the extremely wealthy and of large corporations that are getting away with paying much less tax than domestic corporations. But also, we really need to have much greater regulation of financial markets, which have frankly gone haywire of profiteering by large companies of the kind that we have seen during this latest phase when the Ukraine war itself and the supply shortages explain less than half of the price increases. And the rest of it is really profit taking by large multinational corporations. We need to have a much greater control of society over capital. At the moment, it's the other way around. It's capital controlling governments and therefore societies. So we cannot do any of these things without much stronger public intervention in the public interest, particularly in terms of, for example, providing the required finances or the big turnarounds we're talking about. Say electrification, that requires huge public investment and it has to be global public investment. It can't simply be in one particular country or another. Similarly, we require much greater social protection to ensure resilience. And so, yes, a basic income would be one part of that. But we also need much more in terms of other forms of ensuring security, insurance, and so on. And we need regulation of the completely wayward, irresponsible, and let's face it, selfish activities, the profit-oriented activities of large capital, which can be regulated. It's not that we are forced to live in this world in which they just do what they like irrespective of the needs of everyone else on the planet. We can actually do this through a combination of all of these. Now, the question you're asking about how, will a global fund like this work is a very good question because especially in the developing world, people have good reason to be skeptical of global funds. <laughs> we know what happens with these Bretton Woods institutions and how they dish out money and the differential standards they have for rich countries and poor countries in terms of responding to crisis and so on. So what we are imagining is, in fact, that this becomes the basis for a much wider system whereby individual countries are also enabled to tax more. Right now, they're prevented by the global system that doesn't allow certain kinds of taxation or reduces the ability of governments to tax by allowing a lot of people to just move their wealth elsewhere. And by enabling countries to think of these transfers in addition to universal basic services. Because in large parts of the developing world, it's not just a basic income. It's, we don't have the basic services. We don't provide minimal housing, health, education, nutrition, all the essentials that are required, the basic needs for a decent life. So all of these are essential, but I repeat, they are doable. The world has enough resources. The problem is the concentration of those resources in a very small number of hands. It can be overdone. After all, it was created by human minds. It can be undone by human minds. It just needs sufficient mobilization. It needs a large enough social movement 
to make it impossible for governments to avoid doing this. And I would argue that, uh, and it's a point that the book makes repeatedly, really, that the alternative to doing this is really too hard to contemplate. It is, in a sense, the destruction of everything that we imagine. It's not just, Jorgen put it almost mildly by saying people are going to be experiencing worse standards of living. It's not just a gentle decline. It's going to be sharp shocks. It's going to be devastations. It's going to be major catastrophes and disasters. And we can avoid all of those if we actually are willing to generate enough public opinion to make all of us recognize that this is a collective problem facing humanity and it can be resolved through collective action. Thanks. Sandrine, yes, I was just going to bring you in. Jayati says this can be done if people want to do it, if there's enough collective will there to do it. But there doesn't seem to be this collective will at the moment. If we look at voting patterns in lots of countries, they're not necess- people are not necessarily electing the people who are most progressive in terms of an agenda, as you're suggesting. Do you believe that this will exist out there or how do you turn it around, especially because the window in which the, this plan would have to be put into place would be is very small? So do you see there's an appetite for this and how do you turn that into to change very quickly? Yeah, I think there are several responses to that. The first is that five decades ago, the limits to growth shocked the world. It was the first time that we looked at the impact of population explosion and overconsumption. And interestingly, the scenarios all pointed to the tipping points or at least the key shifts that we would see around the 2020s. So I want to bring in a historic perspective. And if you have conversations with leaders, we can bring in that element of time because we don't have another 50 years. And I think most leaders understand or are right now facing some pretty serious impacts from those tipping points, whether it be social disruption, whether it be climate impacts such as droughts, floods, or whether it be conflict on their soils. Now, whether or not we can tap into that consciousness or not is the key question. Overall, is not necessarily going to shock the world. What it's trying to do is say the shocker is we haven't friggin' woken up. That's the shocker. The solutions are exactly what Jayati has just said. They're in the toolbox. And what we're trying to do is demonstrate what does it look like where actually we are as vulnerable as the most vulnerable link. We have seen it through COVID. We're now seeing it in terms of our unholy alliances and the way in which our value chains have been fully dependent on certain producers and also certain materials. And therefore, can we figure out how we get out of those unholy alliances, which actually will have win-wins for most countries and most people across the globe, because the wealthiest of our society, they can try to hunker down in bunkers. But at the end of the day, the COVID pandemic hit everyone. And yes, the most vulnerable worst, but you were not necessarily out of the way of danger if you had many more cars or many more millions. And that message has to resonate at this time. We have to tap in that consciousness. We also have to tap into the consciousness of through COVID, exactly as Jurgen said, the state took 
control. And again, for good or for bad, and with different results, it very clearly showed that the state can take control when it needs to, that actually some of the state actions worked incredibly well, brought more people on board, developed deeper relationships, and also went back to what was most crucial and essential in our economies, which is the well-being economy in a nutshell. Coming back to making sure that people have access to food, making sure that they have access to energy, making sure that they have access to healthcare, making sure that actually our children could still be educated and our teenagers who were going to school, even if they couldn't physically go. That is the essential of the economy. And that is what we need to tap into. A couple of other points. We've done some of the surveys. We have not done this work in a vacuum. We have understood, first of all, what are those tools in the toolkit that we know of across those five turnarounds? But also we have gone out and we've spoken to G20 citizens in a large-scale survey that are telling us 74% of G20 citizens indicating that actually they are ready for economic systems change, that they recognize that this is the first generation that will make less than its parents, that actually not only through inflation that we're feeling today, but many of them are struggling, that mental illness is on the rise, that suicide is on the rise, that actually inequality, as we saw through the well-being index that Jurgen so clearly demonstrated, is on the rise and the wealthiest are getting wealthier and clearly even the middle class is getting poorer. So what does that look like in practice? Our conversations with leaders have to be around what are those levers for change in that giant leap scenario. And we have clear levers for change, 15 clear recommendations, policy recommendations, but also how to engage with citizens through citizen assemblies, through intergenerational dialogues that will enable more people to get on this journey because they're the ones that are clearly going to push back if they don't understand why we're putting in place some of these changes in our society. And it's our role, all of us, who want to see that change, to bring forward the vision of what it looks like, to be very clear as to what the mechanisms are. What does it mean if we're taxing certain people and not others? Who will actually get the benefit? What does it mean if we can actually put in place that citizen fund and how will it be distributed? Where can we actually look at the lever in terms of the social tension and decrease that social tension because it will be the social tipping points that will probably be our own demise before the environmental tipping points. All of those different recommendations that we have are clearly unpacked so that we can work with policy leaders, but also with people on the ground so they understand the ramifications and the positive vision of that giant leap. Thank you, Sandrine. Those are very powerful words, which we are going to have to end this discussion. But I think I invite anybody listening to this podcast to, to read Earth for All. Is it available in all good bookshops or do people download it? How can people read the book? 
So it is available in a variety of different forms, first online versions and also in bookstores. The easiest way is to go on our website, which is Earth for All. If you just Google Earth for All, it will lead you directly to the website and you can see where you can actually get the book. I think very importantly as well, we are translating the book into Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Spanish, French, Italian. And of course, looking at a variety of other types of potential languages and are very much happy to speak to anyone who would like to have Earth for All translated in their own language. We are also wanting to very much focus on the interactive element of this and to building the movement. So anyone who wants to be part of this movement and work with us, please go online. And in addition, Please also notice that we will be uploading the system dynamic model, bringing in more scientists, put in their data to do analysis. We will have a simulator and we will be reporting over the coming year also on some of the new data for more of the regional specificity and tailored made solutions as well. So this will become beyond a book, hopefully an interactive process and a way to engage as we move forward to truly make a difference. Thank you, Sandrine. So I'd like to thank our guests today, Jayati Ghosh, Jorgen Randers, and Sandrine Dixon-Ditler. And this was a special episode of World Review from the New Statesman in partnership with the Club of Rome and supported by the BMW Foundation. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend and rate us and leave us a positive review. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. I'm Philippa Nuttall. Thanks for listening and until next time.